Hello once again and welcome to Cato Surveillance Week 2023. My name is Patrick Eddington. I'm a senior fellow here at the Institute. Um, I'm joined today by a number of distinguished panelists who I will introduce very, very shortly. Uh, and our topic, of course, is domestic terrorism versus constitutional speech. Uh, I think we're going to have an absolutely terrific uh, discussion today, and we're going to get to that literally within the next minute or so. Just a few housekeeping announcements. If you're watching uh, right now online anywhere, um, remember that you can submit questions via our webpage, Facebook, and YouTube, as well as on Twitter, utilizing the hashtag Century of Surveillance. Um, we're going to be taking those questions, you know, throughout the course uh, of the event. So just keep those coming and we will do our very level best to try to get to those uh, and work those in. Um, as I said at the outset here, uh, we're going to be dealing with this tension, this issue involving domestic violent extremism or domestic terrorism uh, and constitutional speech. Essentially, the question ultimately becomes, when do we cross a line? When do people cross a line from engaging in speech that many of us, if not most of us, I would hope, would find vile, reprehensible, totally repellent towards something that actually involves an actual incitement to violence. We're gonna get into that in some detail today uh, with our panelists. And to that end, I wanna introduce uh, my friend and a frequent co-conspirator uh, on, this, on this topic, Mike German, uh, fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University and a 16-year FBI veteran author of two books uh, that are very relevant to this particular topic. My Cato colleague, Tommy Berry, who is a research fellow in the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies here at Cato. And finally, Dr. Robert Pape, the director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats at the University of Chicago. Gentlemen, I'm delighted to have you with us today. I want to just make a few quick opening remarks here to kind of uh, set the scene and give our, our audience essentially kind of a, a little bit of historical context about how we got here. You know, our country unfortunately has been dealing with domestic violent extremists since the founding of the Ku Klux Klan uh, after the Civil War. You know, the Grand Administration's highly militarized response to Klan violence in 1871 resulted in many Klan members either being killed or convicted and subsequently incarcerated. But an awful lot of the racist and anti-government ideas promoted by the Klan never actually died and in the 20th century were adopted by a number of other groups. In the early 1970s, white supremacist William Luther Pierce III wrote the now infamous The Turner Diaries, a violence-fueled novel about the overthrow of the United States government and its replacement with a whites-only state. The novel inspired Timothy McVeigh to carry out his truck bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City on April 19, 1995 which happened to be the anniversary of the battles of Lexington and Concord by colonial militias against British redcoats. McVeigh's act of terrorism was the high watermark of right-wing violent extremist activity in the 20th century. And it was definitely a perfect example of the Turner Diaries so-called leaderless resistance model in action. But the so-called leaderless resistance model was fundamentally flawed because it failed to recognize that successful revolutions generally do, in fact, need real leaders and a real unified political and military or paramilitary organization to carry them out. So while McVeigh and other violent political actors managed to kill or injure many Americans, they never represented an existential threat to the survival of the Republic. The question before us now is whether we face a new kind of domestic political extremism that is fueled by a violent ideology that does, in fact, represent an existential threat to our nearly 250-year-old experiment in self-government. Today, we're going to examine how the political landscape has changed with respect to potential domestic violent threats, as well as where the line can or should be drawn between speech that most of us, again, would find repellent and true calls for violent action against the government or other persons or groups within society. And, and I'm going to turn first to Mike German. Um, you were an FBI agent in the early to mid-1990s, and during that time, you worked undercover targeting violent white supremacist organizations and individuals. And I think that was in the Los Angeles area. Is that right, Mike? That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and so before undertaking that assignment, I'm assuming that you had to educate yourself on the history, the culture, the, the values essentially of the white supremacist movement. So give us a sense, if you will, of what it was like, you know, back then 25 years ago or so. 
Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Pat. I, obviously, we've been friends for a long time and uh, have a good relationship uh, for many years with the Cato Institute. So really appreciate being invited. Um, so somewhat surprising to me as a, as a fairly young agent, I had about three or four years as an agent when I was asked to go undercover in a, a, a group of violent neo-Nazi skinheads operating in Los Angeles, uh, that I expected that the FBI would have intelligence packages that I could understand the, the community that I was uh, going to introduce myself to, uh, but they really didn't. And uh, turning to academic research, I found that very lacking. Um, fortunately, we had uh, good informant coverage, so I was able to I, get gather information about uh, the particular individuals we were investigating. Uh, but really, it was the the skinheads and the other white supremacists themselves who taught me about it. In other words, I just put myself out there as as a possible recruit, and they educated me on on the history of the movement, on leaderless resistance, which was a concept that was promoted since the 1970s and in white supremacist circles to try to uh, separate the criminal element from the above ground group advocacy groups that were advocating and, and writing newsletters and books, as you mentioned, uh, from the people who were engaging in crime so that the crimes could not be tied back in a conspiracy to the above ground movements. And uh, you know, what I found was, as long as I was focused on investigating crimes, I was fine. And, and you know, there were many people who I came across who were deeply, deep believers in, in national socialism, in uh, uh, white supremacist religions, it, it, who, who wore Nazi armbands and could quote Hitler speeches. Uh, but were very against the violence. You know, they thought, well, they would look at me and say, you know, you don't have any tattoos. You, you, we can put a suit on you and run you for the school board and you'll have a lot more of an ability to, to implement our ideas in that position than sitting in a jail cell, which is where you're going to end up if you hang out with these knuckleheads, if you're lucky enough to live. So understanding that separation between the ideology and, and uh, and the criminality, which sometimes was artificial, right? They pretended that they were part of, of the above ground, but were actually engaging in criminal activity. But as an FBI agent, as long as I focused on the criminal activity, which was my job, I was there to, to gather evidence of crimes and, and to secure convictions. So it, it really wasn't as complicated as people are talking about it today. How many of those groups that were basically around back then are still around today? Um, how much has the movement essentially changed from the time that you were undercover working it up, up to today? So uh, the, the models are the same. There are still neo-Nazi skinheads. Uh, there are still groups that call themselves militias. There are groups that call themselves the Ku Klux Klan. There are groups that call themselves it's similar, uh, use them similar umbrella terms for, for where they position themselves within the movement. Uh, but because there was this leaderless resistance effort, typically you'd see three or four to 10 to 12 people kind of separate from a, 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 the name of a group that might be recognized publicly into some smaller cell of, of uh, people who are going to commit the crime. So those names are interchangeable. You know, it's not like there's a corporate chart. And in order to become a member of one group, you have to sign up on a list. You know, they, they knew that they were under law enforcement scrutiny. So they, they didn't want to sign lists. They didn't want their name to appear anywhere. They didn't come out in public identifying themselves as a member of a group. They would adopt a name amongst themselves. And sometimes those subgroups would have you know internal political squabbles and they would separate and now you have two groups that are really the same one group but uh because of the way that they're operating you know separate into different subunits so so those names are interchangeable 
uh, and and obviously the case that those cases were successful, so those individuals were sent to prison, and those groups, those subgroups, no longer exist, or at least not in the same form. Uh, but the models are still there, and and we can talk about if you want what's different today than than the 1990s. Yeah, I I think that's that's really kind of key because um, you know I've I've noticed you know you know, with some of these groups, let's say like Vanguard America, a much, a much more uh, recent incarnation, um, you know, there was infighting as I understand it uh, within their ranks, which is why we now have this thing called Patriot Front, uh, right. which has metastasized, and I think that's a pretty appropriate word uh, to, to multiple places, uh, you know, in this country. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you can give us some perspective about how things are different now as compared to 25 sure. years ago. And, and Vanguard America, of course, was the group that Alex Fields attached himself to at the Unite the Right rally before he killed Heather Heyer by running his vehicle into the crowd. Uh, yeah. So that was a very common tactic that if if the name of a group got associated with a heinous criminal act, they would just change the name of the group and yeah. hope to throw off law enforcement scrutiny or law enforcement attachment to that criminal act. Uh, and, and, you know, clean themselves, just put on a clean suit and say, okay, now we're a different group and confuse nice. uh, the facts. Uh, so, so that type of activity was, was very normal. I, I think what has changed is number one, law enforcement doesn't seem to have that same grasp of the tactics these groups use where they'll, you know, I, I remember after one uh, march where there was some some violence during the, the, the recent march of Patriot Front, uh, an FBI special agent in charge came out and said, well, we don't have any criminal predicate where, you know, seeming not to recognize that this is actually the same group that was arrested in Idaho. And, and you know, that no, there's plenty of criminal predicate. You just have to understand how the group actually operates. And if they focused on the criminal activity, they could see that through line. But but what's different today is they have much more top cover by people in elected office. You know, back in the 90s, not that there weren't dog whistle politics that uh, certain politicians would, would use language that the far right militants knew was catered to their ideologies. Uh, that dog whistle was put away in favor of a bullhorn where there was active encouragement directed you know to a group like the proud boys stand stand back and stand by uh the, so that kind of top cover creates a very different situation you know what i've always said is that the people who who engage in truly extremist violence at the mar margins of our society they're amateurs you know yeah. in, in the violence game yeah. governments are professionals in the violence game <laughs> they, they can meet out far more violence than than any group of citizens. So when those government powers start to engage with these these far violent far right groups, that's where real danger starts. And I think that the lack of law enforcement attention to these groups as they began committing public violence from 2015 on is is what really created a dangerous situation that directly led to their ability to mass enough violent people at at the capitol on january 6th to actually threaten our democracy and i i think it's probably worth uh worth us noting the fact that you know the last time that we had a national political figure who was able to essentially kind of command the loyalty to some degree of these kinds of groups probably would have been George Wallace, um, you know, in, in, the 19, in the 1968 uh, electoral contest, uh, the last third party candidate to really grab, you know, any number of electoral votes. Um, and, I, and I do think that that's, for me at least, that's one of the most significant differences that I have noticed um, because these groups, you know, back in Southwest Missouri where I grew up, um, these groups were part of the fabric virtually in some respects. I mean, I. I grew up probably less than 100 miles from the compound of the Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord in Pontiac, uh, Arkansas. 
Uh, and so, you know, those, those kinds of, uh, of elements were always there. And of course, um, you know, things like Ruby Ridge and Waco happened, uh, you know, in, in the early 1990s, literally as I was, uh, you know, a young agent at, at the CIA, not working these issues, obviously, because they were completely domestic, but I was not entirely surprised at all, uh, you know, to see a lot of that happen. What did, what did, you know, shock me to my core was what McVeigh and Nichols did uh, in Oklahoma City. Um, and th the fact that um, we only had that one incident, which is bad enough, you know, killed well over 100 people, almost 200 people actually, uh, including a number of children. Um, I think in that respect, we, you know, we kind of got lucky uh, with respect to the, this leaderless resistance movement. But what I worry about now, and I think what Bob will help us understand perhaps a little bit more uh, in just a very short while, uh, is that we're living in a different, you know, era now. We've got a different set of, of problems. You've touched on that. Um, and when we start talking about politics, we're obviously, we're talking about speech. And Tommy, I want to want to bring you into the conversation. You know, I, <laughs> I know that you and I and, and others that, you know, work in this, uh, this arena of constitutional rights, we see a lot of commentary on social media and places like Twitter and, and uh, other social media platforms about free speech or the right to free speech uh, on social media. And I think a lot of folks have developed some kind of view that this is like a universal right that everybody is entitled to. Um, and that's really not accurate. Can you kind of, you know, help us uh, understand the contours of, of speech in America? Right. So first and, and most important is that it First Amendment protects uh, freedom of speech against government action, not against private action. This might be one of the first misconceptions people have. So uh, if Twitter and Facebook or another private company, you know, deplatform you, that's not violating your First Amendment rights because they're not the government. There is some fighting nowadays about, oh, well, what if the government secretly influenced them behind the scenes, so-called jawboning? That's kind of an unsettled and interesting area of the law, but you have to find some government action. And even you can, uh, so if I suddenly tomorrow decide I'm not a libertarian anymore, I'm a socialist, I only want to espouse socialism, Cato can fire me. Uh, it's not a First Amendment violation for Cato or other private institutions to viewpoint discriminate based on viewpoint and who they hire or fire or anything else. So then looking at the government, now does it absolutely prevent the government from criminalizing or punishing all speech at all times? No, it doesn't do that either. Uh, Hugo Black famously was perhaps the most First Amendment absolutist uh, Supreme Court justice we've ever had, who thought that freedom of speech means freedom of speech, uh, but the doctrine we have is a lot more complicated. Uh, the Supreme Court has carved out several exceptions to the First Amendment, said essentially this speech is so low value and or dangerous that normal protections don't apply to it. Uh, most important for our purposes, we'll get into in more depth is incitement, but there are others such as obscenity, which is essentially hardcore pornography, speech uh, integral to criminal conduct. So if I say with seriousness to a hitman, I'll pay you $10,000 to, to murder my wife, that's not, uh, I can't then defend it and say, you can't criminalize that. I, all I did was talk, freedom of speech, uh, some crimes are speech. Uh, there's ongoing interesting debates about talking professions, uh, you know, is a psychologist or a psychiatrist, to what extent can you regulate their speech? Um, but there are limits and essentially most most uh, doctrine has found that there are at least some some ways you can regulate speech when it crosses the line uh, into conduct. And then even putting all those aside, even when you have core speech and it doesn't fall into any of those exceptions, there's still the so-called tiers of scrutiny. So uh, you, at the last resort, the government can say, yes, this is protected speech, but we had such a compelling government interest and there is no other way to further that interest than restricting speech. That rarely wins in court, but it does very occasionally. There is a case called um, uh, a humanitarian uh, something, humanitarian law interest or something like that versus Holder, uh, where a ban on on providing aid, including legal aid to uh, groups designated as foreign terrorist organizations uh, was upheld under strict scrutiny. Uh, so those are, whenever we deal with a government speech restriction, those are kind of the two questions you have to ask. First, does it fall within an exception? Uh, like criminal conduct, uh, obscenity, or incitement? And second, if it doesn't, does the government nonetheless have a compelling government interest in that specific circumstance? Project case that you mentioned uh, is absolutely one of the most disturbing of the last 25 years, maybe ever, frankly, uh, because that organization was basically trying to broker 
uh, a peace agreement between the Turkish government uh, and Kurdish rebels, essentially, if, if I recall the facts of that particular case correctly. Uh, and the idea that a humanitarian, a nonprofit organization that is engaged in work uh, essentially overseas, uh, you know, trying to essentially facilitate a peace process could be targeted in that way, I think, quite frankly, is terrifying. And I know a lot of my friends who, who work in that space, uh, you know, have absolutely said that their work has been, you know, directly impacted. They've essentially had to, you know, kind of rethink how they go about doing some of these things. So I think that's that's absolutely uh, a critical thing to kind of bear in mind here. We've also, of course, during wartime had, you know, a number of uh, of uh, pieces of legislation that have been passed that have, you know, directly impacted uh, speech, including uh, freedom of the press in terms of, you know, what they can actually report. The Espionage Act, by far. Uh, being the most infamous, uh, and there were a number of those cases, you know, in the First World War. Uh, Victor Berger, uh, the first socialist elected to Congress, actually from Wisconsin, uh, had a newspaper called Milwaukee Leader, and uh, in the lead up to World War One, uh, he was constantly, you know, talking, you know, a game of anti-militarism, and and uh, and of course the the arms race that was underway prior to World War One was a big one. Uh, it no doubt contributed to the outbreak of World War One, among other things. But once the United States uh, actually formally entered the war in April of 1917 and the Espionage Act was subsequently passed, the Justice Department went after Victor Berger in his newspaper. Uh, and he wound up, unfortunately, um, you know, being on the losing end, essentially, uh, of that particular case. There are other cases as well, you know, that kind of date from that era. Uh, and, and to me, those were just, you know, straight up examples of, of, of government First Amendment, you know, speech. Uh, repression, and but we've had at least a level of of uh, evolution uh, to some degree uh, over the course of of the last several years. And the most consequential decision uh, that I'm aware of, at least, is the 1969 case of Brandenburg v. Ohio. And Tommy, if you could, you know, just kind of walk us through that a little bit to help folks understand the significance of it, because it deals with a guy with the name of Clarence Brandenburg who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, it's sure it was. Uh, so he was, as you say, a member, I think a leader of the Ku Klux Klan in Ohio. He had apparently to try to get publicity. He had invited some reporters to come and watch film report on uh, a rally that the KKK had in Ohio. They burned a cross. They wore the hoods, uh, the whole nine yards. They gave He gave a speech. And in the speech, one of the key parts was something along the lines. This is not a direct quote. We're not a, uh, he said, we're not an organization based on revengeance, but if the federal government, if Congress and the president and the Supreme Court keep suppressing the whites and the Caucasian race, we may have to resort to revengeance. Uh, and he kind of, and then he said, we're going to march on Washington and then we're going to split up and we're going to keep marching to Florida and Mississippi. So that was the extent of it. And the question was, could he be uh, criminally punished for that speech? Was that incitement? Uh, to to break the law or to, to for lawless action. And as you said, there had been many precedents uh, under the Espionage Act during World War II that had upheld criminal convictions of speech, not really any worse than than that speech that sort of advocated or or at least in oblique terms, maybe resisting the draft, just speech that simply said the draft is immoral had been criminally convicted. And the Supreme Court had upheld that in a trio of cases called Schenck, Frowerk, and Debs. Um, but here, the Supreme Court really turned a corner. And interestingly, as they often do, they didn't admit that they were turning a corner. They claimed that they were just following the test they had set in the past, but the outcome was completely different. And they said, our test is you have speech can only, only falls within this incitement exception to the First Amendment. It can only be criminally punished as incitement um, if, it's, if the purpose is to incite imminent lawless action. Uh, so if it would incite imminent lawless action, and if both the intent and the likely result of it is to incite that imminent lawless action. And I think the, the most important word there is imminent because earlier decisions had been much more attenuated. The notion, the famous uh, fire in a theater analogy came from the Shank case that, oh, you know, in, in the law, people might eventually be hurt um, if, you, if you're doing this, or there's at least a risk that they will be hurt. Or uh, they used another analogy, which is, this speech is like kindling, is like setting a spark in a in a room full of kindling. It's likely to, you know, 
uh, start in a, a dangerous idea and a bunch of people will resist the draft uh, because of it. Here, the Supreme Court said, no, it's got to be a lot more specific. You need to point to the particular people uh, that he was explicitly saying violate the law, take violent action right now. And if you can't do that, it doesn't rise to the level of, of incitement. Interesting um, that, that you're you know framing it in, in that particular way. And, and thanks for that very detailed uh, explanation, because uh, one of our viewers, Patrick MacArthur, uh, had, has this to say, the greatest Americans were extremists, George Washington, Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln, all of these were indeed considered extremists by their contemporaries, should they have been silenced. Um, I, I certainly think that the British Crown viewed Washington, Henry, and Jefferson uh, not just as malcontents, but as absolute terrorists. Uh, the, the suppression uh, of Martin Luther King, of course, has been so well documented uh, in the efforts to try to discredit him. All of that, again, you know, coming at the hands of the United States government. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, would any of those folks have failed the Brandenburg test, Tommy, do you think, <laughs> if the British crown had had such a thing back then? Oh, for the, well, for the British crown, mo most likely, though, though Brandenburg is, is a lot uh, more, more restrictive and a harder test to pass. I, I, uh, another important contrast is with a case called Dennis from the early 1950s that essentially made it criminal to be a, com a member of the Communist Party, in effect. Um, the, basically, they were criminalized for being part of an organization that advocated the overthrow of the United States. And for evidence, they simply said, well, they're, they say that they're, you know, guiding documents or things like the Communist Manifesto, and those advocate a philosophy of overthrowing the government of the United States. So I would really draw a distinction between criminalizing having a philosophy versus criminalizing having a specific plan. Um, and, and Dennis kind of shows just how close people take for granted now that the Supreme Court is, is I would say, on the whole, very good about protecting First Amendment rights, but we easily could have taken a different path, and we basically did take a different path, all from the 19-teens through the 1950s. And it's kind of shocking to read a case like Dennis as recently as the early 1950s that essentially criminalized belonging to a political party. Of course, uh, that there was particular legislation that did exactly that, called the Communist Control Act, uh, the first time that the Congress had actually enacted a statute uh, banning outright a political party. Well, we have we have talked up to this particular point in time about uh, essentially a lot of the history, some of it going all the way back almost to the founding of the Republic in terms of how these things have been settled. And we've got Brandenburg, Ohio, uh, Brandenburg v. Ohio, which Tommy, correct me if I'm wrong, that's still good law as of right now. Is that correct? Absolutely. That's been the test for incitement that uh, courts look to ever since. Yeah. Um, but we now, you know, of course, over the last uh, three years, we have seen the rise of something very, very different. And I want to turn to um, uh, Bob Pape at the University of Chicago. Um, Bob, you and your team at Seapost have been doing a lot of surveys, doing a lot of research, looking specifically at the January 6th related cases. Um, you've done a lot of digging from, from the terms of, in terms of demographics and all the rest of that. Um, and I'll, I'll just, you know, kind of caution our viewers, some of what you're going to see today, um, you know, may well, may well come as a shock to you in some respects, uh, in terms of what Bob and his team have basically come up with. Uh, but at this point, I, I want to turn it over to you, Bob. You've got a presentation, uh, some slides that we'd like to share with the viewers here that amount to essentially the research, your most recent research um, uh, that you've done. So please take it away. Uh, thanks very much, Pat. And it's great to be here. Um, it's great to be on the panel with uh, with Mike and Tommy. And I also want to say, um, I first started working with Cato about 15 years ago. Chris Preble uh, was a big part of that. And it was about the issue of suicide terrorism. So 15 years ago, we had this problem that suicide terrorism was rampant and nobody thought we'd ever get rid of it. Remember, this was supposed to be a problem that would never go away in our lifetime. Well, uh, now uh, with basically bringing much better information about the causes of suicide terrorism, which was 9-11 attack and, and others, uh, they're really the driver of, the, um, of what was threatening us. And Cato was a big part of that. Um, and now we have this whole policy of restraint that Cato has been behind. So basically 15 years ago uh, with Cato's help, um, we managed to bring a whole lot of new information to the public 
Um, and that, I don't want to say solved the problem 100%, but it made a dramatic dent into this problem. And we're not talking about suicide terrorism today. And I'm very glad about that. That was the goal 15 years ago. And we have a similar problem today. We have a new problem on the horizon, one that we really haven't been grappling with uh, for many generations. Um, and that's something that we need to understand better. And I think the more we understand it better, the more we're going to come up with policies to deal with it. But if we don't really understand it, then how are we gonna come up with any real policies? So what I'd like to do is share a few slides and hopefully the toggle here is gonna work and please everybody forgive me if it takes a second to get there. Um, and, and Pat, can you see so far? Yes, um, I okay. think, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, so this will only take a few minutes to walk through these slides, but you're gonna see that our, we are at a precarious moment in our country's history because our democracy is at risk not mainly from a foreign power or from fringe militias like the Oath Keepers, which have these tiny memberships, but from many Americans who are in the mainstream willing to use force to overturn election results. Um, now, I've been studying political violence for 30 years. Uh, most of the time, I've been studying political violence overseas, uh, Bosnia, Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for the last over two and a half years, I've been focusing on the United States and I've done a variety of uh, studies. And I'm going to talk to you specifically today, mostly about the insurrectionist movement in America. Uh, you're going to see uh, our January 6th demographic analysis. I've also, uh, our center's conducted six nationally representative surveys. You'll see a bit of that. And we've done other studies as well, all with trying to get a deep understanding of political violence. Now, let me turn to January 6th, um, because this was not just simply a political protest, but to quote Mitch McConnell, this was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimate election from one administration to the other. Now, there's been a lot of questions about what is January 6th, violent enough or not, a good way to look at this is to compare it to the Beer Hall Putsch in Germany in 1923, which everybody credits as essentially an insurrection. Um, and you can see, uh, if you compare January 6th to November 823, um, they look very, very similar just in terms of atmospherics. But in terms of how many died, how many people uh, were involved, uh, basically, they're almost identical. The goal, the numbers, people dying. Um, this is really a very similar event. Um, uh, and so it's just very important to understand that yes, um, uh, there are degrees of violence. It could have been far more violent than it was. We're lucky it wasn't more violent, but this is plenty violent enough to qualify as an insurrection. And it's also about stopping the transfer of power from one president to another. That, that's at the heart of our constitution. That is what makes us a democracy. Uh, now, as Pat mentioned, um, we have with Big Research Team been studying each and every person charged with offenses for January 6th. We've gone through all of the court documents and this starts from their indictment through sentencing. So for uh, this, this represents 20,000 pages or more of, of legal, uh, uh, documents, um, and we really have quite a wealth of information to share with you. Um, and the very first thing to see, we have about a thousand people now that have been charged, uh, and that's slowing down a bit because, of course, they're, we're reaching the flat of the curve. Uh, but what you see right off the bat is they come from across the country, and notice they're coming from some of the bluest states, California, New York, um, and some of the reddest states. Um, uh, the Dakotas, Wyoming, no insurrectionists whatsoever. Um, and so this tells us a lot right away uh, that this is very different. Normally, if you have a riot, uh, you get riots from people who are literally taking a subcar ride to get to the riot. So this is very, very unusual right off the bat. Also, their age is unusual. The fact they're 40, uh, 41 years old is also extremely surprising uh, here. This is very different than the normal violent extremists we're used to dealing with in America. Uh, now, big finding number one is only 14% uh, 
were affiliated with a violent extremist group. That is the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters. Um, and that means nearly 90% were not. Uh, it was really no surprise to Capitol Hill police uh, or the FBI that there were gonna be Proud Boys or militia groups on January 6th because they had been there in previous protests. They were in Washington on November 12th. They were in Washington on December 14th. That was one in front of the Supreme Court. And so, uh, in fact, there were probably fewer militia members there on January 6th than had been at those previous protests. The big surprise, what made the storm a storm, was the 90% who were not affiliated with the extremist groups. That's really what overwhelmed Capitol Hill police and what they were not really prepared um, to deal with. Now, also, their economic profile is extremely important to see. Um, these, uh, first of all, they're not just, they're not militia, oh, mainly militia members. They're also not mainly unemployed people with nothing to lose. These are not the deplorables. Um, these are, half of them are business owners or CEOs or from white collar occupations, uh, doctors, lawyers, architects. Um, this, is, uh, this, this is anything but the, uh, the description that you typically see about uh, who these folks are. And this is really not to our good. Uh, to misunderstand that. Now, to give you a sense of this, and we, again, we cover each and every person, um, but I just want to give you a sense here of the people, and I don't have time to go through all thousand, but I do have time to go through a few, um, and you can see uh, their, you know, we have their pictures, we know their names. See, the, the court documents, once you process people through our court system, we get a ton of information about them. It just all has to be sucked out and aggregated and so forth. Um, and, uh, that, and that takes a big research team. Um, but if you also look at their occupations, um, we have drug enforcement um, from the administration, we have uh, doctors, uh, we have people from the State Department, um, we have uh, university students, um, we have uh, financial uh, people who run financial companies, uh, we have uh, the, uh, the chairwoman of Young Republicans, military contractors, uh, these are really not um, the usual, you know, rednecks in pickup trucks uh, that we're used to thinking of the deplorables who are involved. This is really mainstream um, America. These are all Trump supporters. Uh, one thing you might want to know is, so at the top, you see the offense that they are being charged with, entry, violence, property damage, having a weapon. So we can track all that. Uh, but notice it, the issue of the political motivation is not part of the charge. If you look at their, all, these, all the information about them, you will see many, many of them have a very simple reason why they stormed the Capitol. Trump told them to do it at the ellipse. Trump said to do it. He's the president. They did it. They do not say, not a single person says, the Oath Keepers told me to do it or the Proud Boys told me to do it. This is really very clearly a different kind of problem issue than we're used to dealing with because it's political violence in the mainstream. Now, to get a little bit more information, we can look at where they live, where they came from. And what's really striking is more came from districts won by Joe Biden than came from districts won by Donald Trump. These are not mainly coming from Trump country. Uh, again, another myth that has grown up in all of our main newspapers, which is just not true. Um, these are not mainly militia members. They're not mainly rednecks and pickup trucks, and they're not mainly coming from Trump country. Uh, they are coming from the most diverse areas, uh, as you will see in a moment. So do the counties, what is special about the counties where they come from? Uh, well, aside from population size itself, which is the number one predictor, of uh, counties that had an insurrectionist, as you might expect, more people, more chance of having an insurrectionist. Um, what you see is its white population decline, uh, especially since the, in the last 10 years. Um, that means that these are the, the counties in the country uh, that are the most diversifying counties in the country. Um, and that's really the key thing to understand, which is that they're coming from Chicago, they're coming from San Francisco, they're coming from New York City, not upstate New York, Philadelphia, not the middle of Pennsylvania, 
Um, this is, uh, the, they're not coming from the panhandle of Texas, they're coming from uh, Dallas, um, Austin, um, et cetera. So what you are seeing here is that uh, people who, um, uh, these are Republicans, but people who have been basically imbued with either rhetoric from Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, about the great replacement, uh, that the Democratic Party is deliberately replacing the white electorate with uh, a new, um, a more diverse electorate who will be more obedient to the Democratic Party. Well, if you're on the front lines of that, you can sort of understand that's where this is coming from. Um, and that's very important to, to see is what's really uh, sort of the, 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 the factors around the insurrection. Uh, so bottom line is uh, these insurrectionists are from the mainstream. They're not just militia groups or the fringes of society. Um, now, how do we strengthen American democracy? Well, the key thing first is to recognize that our current narratives are inaccurate and they're not strengthening democracy. Uh, January 6th was not a peaceful protest as the right is claiming. Uh, it, January 6th also was not a product of the deplorables from the fringe as the left likes to claim. We need a national conversation based on reliable, accurate knowledge. We need to use the 18 months between now and the 2024 election and not just wait and sort of see, well, maybe we'll do something if there's a problem. Now is the time we need to act. And the key is accurate information in the public sphere. Democracy turns on deliberating, but deliberating accurate information. And that's what we have the least of. It's not like we just have sort of some modest disinformation on one side or the other. And if we just listen to MSNBC, we're gonna all be okay and don't listen to Fox. The problem is we need reliable, accurate information that's not politically driven. And that's what we're trying to do at CFOs. Uh, now, one way we're trying to do it that I wanna show you is uh, a major international newspaper uh, we're in discussions um, with them to publish our uh, Dangers to Democracy tracker. Uh, this comes from our nationally representative surveys, which we conduct every three months. Um, and hopefully this will become more uh, in the public sphere in the near term. And well, this will be in the public sphere between now and the 2024 election. And we'll do these every three months. But what you can see is that we ask questions um, some people ask some parts of this, but we're the ones asking all of it. And what you see is we also track these over time. So you get a better sense of any individual piece, but also over time and also in combination with the larger landscape of the American mindset. And the first thing you see is deep distrust of American democracy. Um, there are uh, 258 million American adults, just to be clear. Uh, that's the number that we use from the census. And you can see large fractions of these American adults um, um, uh, see have deep distrust of American democracy. Um, and it's cutting across both parties and it's not getting better, which means we're not doing enough to really uh, improve confidence in democracy. It's getting worse and worse. Uh, political conspiracy theories are essentially flat over time. Uh, these are not really getting any better, um, in some getting a little worse, but bottom line is um, they're not getting much better because the public is not really getting um, any real uh, uh, information that, that's not really politically driven. Um, and finally, support for political violence, it's pretty significant. These are, these are uh, this is not just the fringe, um, about 1 million people would be members of maybe all of the total extremist groups we can imagine. It's probably even half that number. Uh, this many times that. Um, and what you see is that it cuts across both parties. Um, we have force justified to restore Trump to the White House, quite a significant number there. And we've seen actually an event, January 6th, related to that. But we also have force uh, we, um, uh, justified for left-wing causes that has not materialized. Hopefully, um, um, Democratic leaders will remain restrained, but it's important to remain restrained. Um, and we also see force justified to coerce Congress here. And we see actual events uh, of, of this occurring. So this just helps us to see the mindset and also to give an example of what I mean by bringing accurate information 
uh, to the body politic so that we can really discuss this, uh, discuss the facts. Um, and I think this is very, very important uh, to do. Um, I think that this is something we've moved away from, um, uh, but I think it's something that Cato can do something about this. And I hope that we will, because we've seen, as I said, with suicide terrorism, uh, success uh, with building better policies over this. So I'm gonna stop, with that, I'm gonna stop sharing. Uh, hopefully I'm gonna be, um, if you can just let me know, Pat, if I'm back. And I've got to stop the toggle. And there, you I think there we are. There we are. Well, Bob, thank you so much for that incredibly informative and from my perspective, totally terrifying uh, presentation. I, I do want to uh, take some uh, additional audience questions here because we have talked uh, for the better part of 40 minutes or so about the issue of right wing uh, related violence. Folks are asking about Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, why aren't BLM and Antifa targeted by law enforcement, given the amount of violence and property destruction in the summer of 20? I will say that for our part at Cato, uh, we have an extremely aggressive Freedom Information Act program that I've been running for the last five years, uh, very intensely for the last uh, three and a half. And we have accumulated data on, we know that the FBI uh, is tracking uh, uh, BLM, Antifa, all the rest of that. I think in, in many circumstances here, a lot of this tracking uh, is is not actually legitimately criminally predicated. Uh, we could do an entire program, literally, uh, on how the FBI goes about engaging in these, in these investigations. Clearly, though, uh, in, in 2020, especially in Portland and some other cities around the country, even before uh, the tragic murder of George Floyd uh, in Minneapolis by uh, then uh, Minneapolis Police Department Officer Derek Chauvin, uh, there was an awful lot of, of anarchist, uh, black block anarchist related violence and things of that nature that were taking place. So, I, you know, it is not our intent here today to try to in any way, shape or form say that there isn't a level of violence on the left. I think the problem that, that we see, certainly the problem that I see, and I think that that Mike and Bob definitely share this, this worldview, uh, is that traditionally uh, in the American context, we have seen most of this kind of thing coming from the right, and certainly there has never been an act uh, on the part of folks on the left uh, of an ar organized armed violent nature uh, that would even come close to what we saw uh, on January the 6th. And, and I think that um, uh, the, the magnitude of the problem that, that Bob has laid out here, we're talking about a fundamental societal problem. Um, we're talking about, I think, at the end of the day, you know, the issue of fundamental political legitimacy. And in the case of Mr. Trump, it was the first time that we actually had a presidential candidate, in essence, not only refuse to recognize the results, but try to reverse those results. Now, you know, I would say that, um, you know, Mr. Trump's efforts were essentially kind of a, a pickup game of basketball version of, of attempted coup or attempted insurrection. It was not nearly uh, as well organized or coordinated as it otherwise might have been. Uh, and I'm certainly thankful for that. And I think we should all be thankful for that. Um, but this problem, you know, that Bob has put his finger on, and I will say that, you know, I try to track these cases too. I, I don't have this, I don't have the staff that you do, Bob. So I'm not in a position to, to go into the, quite the level of depth uh, that, that you do in terms of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis with this particular problem. But what I'm always struck by, I think above all else, is the demographic aspect of this and, and the age aspect of it. An awful lot of folks that were involved uh, on January 6th in the breach of the Capitol were essentially what we would normally think of as middle-class Americans. Um, these were folks that, that you know, had existing occupations. As you point out, a number of these folks were small business owners. Uh, a lot of these folks, you know, well over the age of 40. I've seen some people that have been indicted or even sentenced at this point. They're in their 60s. I think I saw one guy who was even in his 70s. Um, and that, to me, at least, speaks to a really big problem here. And, and Tommy, when we, when we talk about messaging and, and we talk about, um, you know, what can actually be done here, um, clearly, we at least I don't want to see any kind of government attempts at coercion with respect to, um, you know, social media companies and all the rest of that. But, you know, what things could essentially, you know, private organizations be doing and what should they be doing? What do you think they ought to be doing? Uh, in essence, within the bounds of the Constitution, to try to highlight this problem, deal with the disinformation, you know, deal with 
with things that tend to, let's say, maybe potentially trend towards incitement. Is there anything, I guess, in, in the way of a voluntary and or free market approach uh, that could potentially help with this? Yeah, there is. I mean, uh, private companies, as I said at the beginning, have much more leeway than than uh, the government. Traditionally, they're considered to have as much leeway as they want. They can, you know, you, a Reddit thread or a moderator can set whatever rules of discussion uh, he or she wants, and it certainly doesn't have to mirror uh, the First Amendment. You know, Elon Musk famously said he wants to turn Twitter into a First Amendment zone, but that's a choice of a, of a private company. Uh, how much they want their moderation decisions to mirror the First Amendment. So a, a Twitter or a social media company could certainly say, we're going to be more aggressive than the government could in terms of what speech the government can prohibit or criminally punishment. Um, anything sort of getting close to uh, that line or anything that we just think is even just, you know, has ha has a tendency to promote ideologies or, or, you know, violent extremism, they can simply say that doesn't belong here. Now, one wrinkle is that some states, mostly Republican states, have started to pass laws attempting to restrict the freedom of social media companies. Texas and Florida both passed laws that essentially said, no, your, your moderation decisions have to essentially mirror the First Amendment. If it's legal speech, you have to leave it up. Uh, in my view, those laws themselves violate the First Amendment rights of the social media companies. But an interesting effect, probably an unintended effect of those, is that if they were upheld and actually went into force, then suddenly tests like Brandenburg would apply to the social media companies, at least in, in Texas and Florida. And they would suddenly have to start applying these, these tests to determine uh, where the First Amendment line is. And I think that's more harmful uh, than helpful. Um, another uh, more difficult question is to what extent can the government start investigating speech and social media has a role to play here. Perhaps it sees a tweet and says, this might be problematic, let's pass this on to the FBI. It's really an unanswered and a, and a somewhat, what would I say, unsettled area of the law. Um, to what extent can viewpoint-based distinctions be made when the government says, we're going to follow this person a little more closely than this other person, maybe even get a search warrant for this person based on, we don't like what he's saying. There's a case called Reichel out of Alaska in the Supreme Court about a decade ago, where the Supreme Court could have decided, uh, or at least added some clarity as to uh, whether there's a First Amendment problem with arrests that might have been in part retaliatory based on speech, but also perhaps had probable cause. Uh, but the Supreme Court punted. They simply said uh, qualified immunity applied, protected the officer who made the arrest, so we don't have to decide the constitutional question. Um, but these are, so, you know, if one administration look, you know, follows violent left-wing extremism more closely than right-wing and the next does the opposite, um, those are viewpoint-based distinctions that that really raise thorny questions. Yeah, I, absolutely. And it's interesting, uh, uh, Bob and Mike, we have uh, one individual anonymously asking, could the information be affected by prosecutorial discretion in terms of where suspects were actually indicted? I'm not, not sure about that one. Or could there be other confounding variables uh, about the source of the insurrectionists? Bob, do you have, I think you have high confidence about your findings and your team's findings, am I correct? Well, well, we, we, we do, um, and the reason we do is because um, we have two core excellent sources. Um, one is we have the court documents themselves, which go through multiple iterations, and they don't just say where a person was arrested, but they do say where they live. Um, and we can then verify that with a variety of public sources. So we have access to public financial databases that are used. So we have we are at the University of Chicago, so we are not just doing this on the fly. We have uh, a lot of database resources, the same that you would have at banks, the same you would have at the law school. So this is what we can, so we have basically the court documents, but then we have this collection of highly reliable um, additional verification information. Uh, and you put those two together and you have really the best picture one could have. So. Um, it's very unlikely there is like systematic bias and so forth. Um, it could be, there's a little mistakes here or there. Um, can't really guarantee they're not, but nonetheless, um, when you put the vol voluminous stuff together um, and our, um, we have detailed reports here um, that back that up. You know, you and I have talked previously about this issue of 
a white supremacist problem within law enforcement. And if I recall correctly, there was a specific uh, uh, FBI document from about 2015 that actually served as a, a warning, essentially, uh, to bureau agents, uh, you know, about dealing with state and local law enforcement, you know, with that kind of concern. Can you kind of very quickly give us a, a thumbnail of that? Sure. Uh, when I was going undercover in the early 90s, uh, it was a joint terrorism task force case. So there were other federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies with us. And we were brought into a, a room and, and warned not to talk about the operation, the undercover operation, uh, when we're back with our police departments or agencies, uh, because we recognized there were sympathizers within law enforcement. And there wasn't any pushback to that. Everybody acknowledged that, yes, that's certainly a possibility. And we want to make sure that we're protecting the integrity of the operation and the safety of the undercover agent. Uh, in 2006, those, those warn warnings were put in writing in, a, in an internal FBI memo that was subsequently released through FOIA. But in 2015, the one you mentioned, the Counterterrorism Policy Guide, it made the, the the concern more salient. It said not just that you might have sympathizers in law enforcement, but that the subjects of domestic terrorism investigations into white supremacists and far-right militant violence often had active links to law enforcement. So not just that there was sympathy with these ideas, but that there was active links between the people that the FBI was investigating for engaging in violence and law enforcement. And certainly January 6th saw enough participation uh, of, by, by active law enforcement for us to recognize this is a real problem. I, I'd, I'd like to really quickly I, I address two uh, myths or, or issues that I think are, aren't, haven't been mentioned yet. One is this idea that law enforcement stood down uh, during the 2020 protests or the throughout the Black Lives Movement. Hundreds and hundreds of arrests were made during those protests, including arbitrary arrests, masking of uh, protesters, uh, and, and extraordinary tactics. Federal agents in unmarked cars grabbing people on the streets of Portland and throwing them into a van. You know, the, these activities were aggressively policed. What they didn't find was the overarching conspiracy that President Trump and Attorney General Barr were claiming existed. When they actually interrogated those people, they were not traveling around the country on Antifa buses and these other rumors that had become rampant. Um, and I would just, uh, I, I truly appreciate Robert's uh, uh, research and, and it's essential to understanding this problem. Um, but one caveat I, I would just put out as Robert's slideshow identified about 2,000 people participated in the riot. Only 1,000 have been arrested yet so far. So we're only looking at, at the portion that, that were arrested. And initially in the investigation, the FBI and the Justice Department focused on misdemeanor charges against people who had trespassed into the Capitol rather than the people who were violent out in front of the Capitol that they're only getting to now. So that all that data is going to be crucial to really understanding this problem. Uh, and the other thing is, is again, as I mentioned, the white supremacists, the, the ones who are interested in violence, tend not to sign up for big above ground groups. So <laughs> just because somebody isn't direct, you know, on, on a membership list for the Proud Boys yeah. doesn't mean that they're not active with the Proud Boys when the Proud Boys are out committing violence or the Oath Keepers or, or other organizations. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, my frustration is that law enforcement hasn't done the work that Robert's doing to really yeah. understand the violent element within this movement. The, the FBI still today doesn't track domestic terrorism incidents. They don't know how many people white, white supremacists killed across the country every year because they don't track that information. That seems to be a critical intelligence failure that you don't even know the scope of the violence. And, and I think that's what leads them to focus more on social media and what people believe rather than yeah. focusing on the violent acts. Sorry to take it so long. No, but I, I think what you, and we are gonna have to run here. We are just a little bit over our normal time limit here, but I wanna say that uh, I am aware that uh, 
the chairman of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Durbin of Illinois, uh, has had legislation in the past to try to address that very uh, information deficit that you were talking about there, Mike. Um, an extremely uh, informative uh, panel we've had today. My thanks to Mike, uh, Robert Pape at the University of Chicago, my colleague, Tommy Berry. I apologize that we were not able to get to all of your questions. Um, we value every single one of them. Uh, we value all of you for carving out your time to be with us today. Uh, we will uh, wrap up Cato Surveillance Week 2023 tomorrow, Thursday, uh, June 8th, with a panel dealing with biometrics versus privacy. Uh, so we'll be doing that at one o'clock Eastern. I invite you to tune in. Until then, for the Cato Institute, I'm Patrick Eddington. Thanks for watching.